0: You're listening to Chief Executive Auntie, the podcast about the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Dwan Faults, and this is a mini episode today. And my business bestie is joining me to talk about some important but usually underrated numbers to know about your business. So welcome to this episode, Kate.
1: Thank you for having me. This is delightful. Yes, this is super fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Both of us just did our annual year-end reports. Actually, this is my first time doing a year-end report.
1: Same.
0: And was there some competition about the graphics we made? I mean, maybe, but you're the designer and I'm not. So you probably
1: won that game. I was, I was proud of what you did.
0: Thank you. As I was doing this, I realized that, you know, I think a lot of freelancers, including myself, really just focus on the bottom line at the end of the year, like how much money did I make? And as I was going through things, I I realized, huh, there's other important numbers and things that we need to think about. And that was inspired by your report. Like you pulled a lot of different stats that I hadn't necessarily thought about pulling out. So I just wanted to talk about that today.
1: Well, and not only is the bottom line, what you made, not super important, in the overall health of your business, I think part of the problem with that is that you can really easily compare yourself to other businesses mm-hmm. using just that number. Mm-hmm. And that's not really helpful. Yeah. It's more useful for me to see what kinds of clients that are recurring and to see how much time I spent every week and to see what my billables are. Because I am intentionally part-time because I've got kids at home, my net profit is never gonna look like people who don't have that situation right so right, exactly i always had a huge imposter syndrome problem when it came to year-end reports and i never ever ever put my annual income out in the world before and this is the year that i got brave and did it
0: and who reminded you that you are intentionally part-time
1: i know this is kind of a new mindset for me in, in the past year like before i just felt like oh, i've been doing this for seven years and I should be making way more. And I never really took into account the fact that I've had a kid in my house for six of those years. So. And you never... added a new one during that time. <laughs> right. Well, like the, the narrative just needed to be reframed. It's not a thing that I was good about doing until this year. And I still have to remind myself of that. I still have imposter syndrome and compare myself to other people and definitely should not. But I think that you were right that the representation matters in showing my actual stuff to the world because other people could be like me and could be really nervous about saying, this is what I made, this is who I work with, and I think somebody's got to go first, so... Not that I was the first, obviously.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think most of what we hear about is like, I made $100,000 in my first year of business. And that is not the norm. It just isn't. Whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a caregiver or not, that's not the norm. And so a lot of my motivation for my year-end report was just kind of pulling back the curtain and being like... Okay, this is what this actually looks like. And I'm four years in. Sometimes I think, yeah, I maybe I wish I were a little further along than I am right now. But then I think to myself, okay, but the whole point of me doing this is to be able to take two weeks off. Anytime I need to, because my kid needs me or Mm -hmm. to go on, you know, vacation whenever we want to, you know, with some planning, obviously, but I just want to kind of talk about what a freelance business actually looks like. So the board bottom line, I think also maybe needs a little bit of explanation because... I think people think, "Oh, how much money did I make? Cool." But you also have to consider how much money did you spend mm-hmm. on your business, which I did not understand in my first in my first <laughs> business, which was a photography business, and then I actually like did my numbers and I was like, "Oh, I'm paying people to let me take their picture." Okay, that's cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, luckily you and I both are now in positions where our expenses are really really low. Basically, we're paying for software. We're not paying for any physical stuff that we're sending out into the world for the most part. So, yeah, I mean, you and I are both able to run a very profitable business.
0: Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar, Profit is your revenue, what you take in, minus your expenses, what you pay out. And so those expenses can be software that you use if you pay a VA or a bookkeeper or you subcontract part of a project out. I put taxes under expenses in my bookkeeping system. I don't know if that's like totally the right way to do it. (laughs) Um, I'm not an
1: accountant, so I don't know. But I but I
0: (laughs) I take my quarterly estimated taxes out off the top, basically, so that I don't pretend I have that money to spend because I'm not going to. And so my profit this year off of my contracting work or freelancing work is about 78% of my revenue, Mm -hmm. um, which is very high. I think if you are running a crafting business, if you're running any sort of e-commerce, even if you're running like a photography business where you have physical products that you deliver, that profit margin I don't know if that's the correct way to use that term. But that percentage is probably going to be lower because you will have more overhead. You will have more cost of goods. I effectively have no cost of goods whatsoever. Besides, sometimes I'll
1: have a software that I use for one project or a plugin that I use for one project. Well, anything where you have a physical product or you're renting space or renting equipment or whatever, like that's definitely going to result in a lower revenue. Yes.
0: And... Then the next thing I thought about was, well, what did I actually pay myself? I did not pay myself all $23,000 of that, by the way. I pay myself a flat amount each month. And if I make more than that, then about I'll clear that out kind of like as a bonus a couple of times a year. And so I actually paid myself from my freelancing $20,500 this year.
1: I tend to align myself as lawful good but when it comes to paying myself i'm a true chaotic neutral <laughs> when i've had a good month and we've got things like property taxes due i shift 80 percent of my account into my joint account i have a business bank account and everything gets funneled through that. Every business expense goes on a business credit card. All of that stuff is separate. And then when my family needs the money, that's when I move stuff out as an owner draw. I don't recommend being me in this part, <laughs> But um, because my business, like I have good seasons and slow seasons. So I don't commit to, I'm automatically going to take out a certain number every month or something like that.
0: Yeah. My owner draw has been the same for, I want to say at least two years. And my business has grown in that time, but my owner draw or what I pay myself has not changed to kind of cover that seasonal fluctuation. And then this year by March, I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to have any clients again. So I'm not going to change that right now. March was a dark. But spoiler alert, this actually was my best year of freelancing, much to my same. surprise. The next thing that I looked at was percentage revenue from different types of
1: projects. I think Kate, you looked at that as well. I did, but I didn't write my numbers down. So I'm getting them while you talk. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this year, about 30%
0: of my income came from copywriting and strategy for marketing purposes. And that was largely one client. It's also probably not ideal to have that much of my income coming from one client. But it is a strange year. I'll I'll just kind of keep an eye on that for for next year. What's the recommended like 10 or 15% from any one
1: source? I'm not sure. I've got like a real big fish too so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and again there's the ideal that people talk about but we're here to show you kind of what it may actually look like i have another major anchor client who is 22 percent of my income um, and they're not going to be around next year either but it's good to know those things it's good to know how much of each type of, especially if you do different types of work you know This kind of breakdown will tell you what is the most profitable, but I also like to look back and say, oh, how did I spend my time? Do I like this percentage? Are there things I want to do more of? Do I want to do less of? Um, So this type of breakdown is
1: helpful for looking at that. If you track these sorts of things every year, which I intend to do from here on out, you could see how those percentages are changing Mm -hmm. and whether you made a specific marketing push to get yourself in front of more people or joined a networking group, you could see whether that was earning returns and you could decide to double down on it, or you could veer away from things that you notice are not working. So kind of keeping in mind what efforts you gave versus how that affected your year-end your numbers and whether yeah. to continue. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, like this year, about 25% of my income came from web design and am I destroying my entire business for next year and rebuilding it? I might be (laughs) because I'd like to move away from that. And and knowing that that's 25% of my income kind of gives me an idea like, okay, so I have to find a replacement for that with some other service that I'm doing. It's hard because it is important to specialize and be known for one type of thing. But I think within that, you want to have several different needs that you can meet. Kate, you also did a really interesting breakdown of income by client. Can you talk a little bit more about
1: that? So one of the things that I feel a lot of pressure from as a freelancer is finding the next client, finding the next client. And a couple years ago, I started to track this. So I have been doing it for a while and I am a lot more secure in it now. I look at whether... I'm getting income from recurring clients, from new clients that I expect to recur, from new clients that I'm definitely not going to work with again, just because it was like a one-off project or for whatever reason. And then this year, I also kind of kept track of people that I have done more stuff with, but they did less with me this year because of the pandemic or sometimes Client relationships just end. My returning and new likely to return were 32 and 41 respectively. So already. That's like three quarters total. I know. That's almost 73% of my income that I expect to do probably about the same level with next year, and then people who are affected by the pandemic, probably the people who are affected are going to make it because there are associations who will probably need stuff in the future, but their budgets may just be like decimated. So I don't want to count on those 21%. And then the one-off projects tend to be very small. So that's only 6% of my income and that's totally fine. But looking at those numbers really helped me feel a lot more secure in the fact that I need to continue to nurture my client relationships and obviously do like a phenomenal job for anybody that I work with, whether I expect to work with them again or not. But it just took the pressure off of like, I need to find somebody, I need to find somebody, I need to find somebody, I need to work on my funnel, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need a newsletter. I don't need to find that many new clients per year to stay where I'm at.
0: Yeah. So It takes a ton more energy to find a new client than to convince a previous client to hire you again. For something else. It will depend on your business, how that actually shakes out. I don't have a ton of recurring clients, but I Mm -hmm. am looking into like what are ways that if I build a website for someone or I build a course for someone, what are ways that I can continue to be helpful to them in a small way? They're not gonna be building a new website every month. I hope (laughs) god please no (laughs) because that's that's that means something else is very 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 wrong but i can do maintenance for them if somebody makes a signature course they're probably only going to do one or two of those a year but i can come in as a course manager and take data on the learning outcomes and how well students are doing i'm not making a new thing for them every time but i can still continue
1: providing value I also think that just the nature of my work makes it very easy for clients to recur because they either need multiple documents or they have annual events or have things going on throughout the year what you were talking about with finding small ways to work with people in the future like putting money into that i guess maybe you would call it warm prospecting like reaching out and saying hey, I think that maybe this might be a good thing to do with your business. Do you want to talk about it or something? Even if that doesn't shake out into a project, you are staying on their mind. And that Mm -hmm. makes them way more likely to refer you because they're like, oh, right. Oh, my God. I loved working with Jen. You know what? Who who could use her? So and so. And the referrals are gold. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not finding the recurring income from one of those clients, It's going to lead you into the next thing that we want to talk about, which is like where you are getting more clients from and client referrals are the best kind of referral. They
0: are because you don't have to do anything for them. I want to talk about hourly rates because that's my sermon on the mount (laughs) that I always like to scream about within like the first year or two of my business. I was like, I've exceeded my hourly rate from teaching, which is not hard because if you calculate contractual hours and the time I spent grading and that one year that I spent 10 hours a week commuting to my job. Oh, um, no, no, it was terrible. (laughs) Um, My actual take home hourly rate for being a teacher was pretty terrible. So I surpassed that very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. It did take me longer to surpass the like total gross amount of money. But honestly, sometimes I feel like my hourly rate matters more to me than be like sum total of what I bring in. And that may not be the case for everybody. My income is supplementary for our household. And that's not going to be the case for everybody listening to this. I pay attention to my hourly rate a lot because, because I'm a parent because every hour I spend working is an hour. I'm not with my family, managing my household, resting. And so it has to be worth that. And I don't charge hourly, by the way. And I have a whole, that's a whole other like monologue I can go into, which I'm not going to right now. I don't actually charge hourly, but I like to kind of see, okay, if I charge this much for a project and I spent this many hours, what does that actually end up being? That's really important to me because I don't get paid for every hour that I spend working. I spend time on bookkeeping, on sales calls, on not really marketing myself, but like networking within networking. communities. Yelling on Twitter is part Yelling of it too. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> I spend time on this podcast. So that hourly rate, whatever that ends up being has to cover that time as well. That was a pretty important lesson because at first I was like, Oh my God, how do I charge $50 an hour? And then I spend five hours on the project, but I spend 10 hours like getting the project in the first place. So I don't know what 50 divided by 15 is, but I think it's like five. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not five. (laughs) So like- So, you know, $50 an hour, great, but when you factor in that non-billable time, expenses, taxes, which you still have to pay, um, Mm -hmm. $50 an hour really kind of actually means $20 an hour when you're done with it. My target right now is about $125 an hour. I'm usually a little bit underneath that, so I probably need to raise some of my rates, but being able to calculate that at the end of the year and knowing kind of where I'm at lets me know what to do going forward. If you want to figure out your own target hourly rate, I have a calculator for that, and I will drop that in the show notes, which Kate made for me. I did. <laughs> it's very fancy. You don't have we to do did any some math. Some
1: fun stuff. You just oh put yeah, in. no, you don't have, you don't to, have to figure do any math. out. You just put in how many times want. fifteen goes yep. into three or fifty on that. Don't worry calculator. about it. Don't worry about <laughs> it.
0: Yeah, you just put in what you want to net per hour, and then it'll tell you what you need to actually charge. Again, I don't charge hourly. I turn that into a project rate, right? but that's another lecture. Kate, you did a better job of this than I did this year, a much better job um, of tracking your total billable hours. What mm-hmm. did you do and
1: why? I have been using a time tracker since like the first week of freelancing because I still do charge hourly on some things don't yell at me well it makes sense for you for
0: certain again hourly rate is not bad it just it it makes sense for certain things and it doesn't make sense for other things that's all
1: no and and like some of my clients bless them very very much but if i tried to do a flat fee we would exceed it all of the time and it would make me want to murder them so rather than get into that we do hourly so I've always been in the habit of knowing what, how much time I track on projects, and it helps me to estimate future projects, because mm-hmm. as I move into more flat fee things, I can look at previous like branding projects, previous conferences of similar scope, so I know how long I'm going to spend on the program and like all that stuff. That's very useful to me. And I have a wealth of data for me to look at, which is great. And then last year, I started being better about tracking my non-billable time. The times that I spend brainstorming on future service ideas, reading articles that will help me better understand my business or taking online courses that let me know how to do a particular tool or a particular trick in InDesign or whatever. And then of course, like accounting and networking and all that stuff. So I have a pretty good handle on what I do that's paid and what is unpaid. So this year I spent about 58% of my time was billable, which is not bad. And then 42% was unbillable. And again, that encompasses like increasing my own skills, like non-project specific stuff, but then things like emailing the client ends up in billable because it's time I spend on a specific project. And I try to build that or build that into my project proposal anyway. I also, was curious about how many hours per week actually work um, because, you know, 2020 pandemic, I have two children in my house sometimes. (laughs) I know that I'm never going to have a 40 hour work week, like not for years when the kids can get themselves to school and home from school all by themselves, (laughs) then we will talk. But yeah, I'm about 14 hours per week right now. Like I did a little fuzzy math of like guessing how how much time I took off for vacation or whatever. I just picked a random number of weeks to divide my overall by. And then again, only 58% of that is billable. And there are times when I do have way over 14 hours per week. And then there's times like December where everything is dead in my business. And I just daydream about the things that I want to do next year or talk to you about my numbers.
0: Yeah, well, and I kind of want to bring this back to the top. So you work 14 hours per week. I'm probably around the same amount, maybe a little bit more because I had more child. Well, I had more (laughs) child care for some of the year. (laughs) But, you know, let's say we work 15 to 20 hours per week and made close to $40,000. If you annualize that, you know, That's not too shabby. And that's what I remind myself. I'm not working full time. And so I don't have to be embarrassed that, oh crap, I only made 40,000 this year and I only netted 35 or 30 of that. I only worked 15 hours a week. My second teaching salary was $42,000 a year and I worked 60 hours a week you know? And so again, that's why that hourly rate matters so much to me. Mm -hmm. What am I spending my time on and how am I getting compensated for it? The point of this is just find what works for you Mm -hmm. and for where you are in your life, for the goals that you want to meet. One thing that I have really learned from several of my podcast guests in the last few years is that some people Work to live. They don't live to work. They work enough to make money to get by Mm -hmm. and to finance whatever their passion is. And their passion is not their work. They're not immediately trying to monetize their art. They're just doing something else to pay the bills, to get the lifestyle that they want so that they can spend, you know. 25 hours a week writing or whatever it is. And that's okay too. I think we glorify the people who leave their full-time job and make six figures in their first year of freelancing. Well, how many hours did they work to do that? Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want and that's where you are, but there's other ways to do it. And that was kind of my main point in wanting to share all of this with you.
1: I mean, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that if that is this space you are in your life, but also like the glorification of that can make everybody else feel really crappy. And I'm not on board with that at all. Like n- not everybody wants to kill themselves on nights and weekends and participate in hustle culture. And if you want to opt out of that, I say, look at the numbers for your business. Look at the numbers that mean something to you. Mm-hmm. Analyze the the aspects that are going to help you grow your business intentionally and figure out like what makes you feel good if you are breaking the threshold of a former paycheck and that is the thing that you're like i did it this year yes like that's totally fine you don't have to have a six-figure business especially if you are not in the same situation as those people some people are like oh yeah i'm a nap time warrior or whatever like Okay, nap time is also a thing that you can get your own stuff done. (laughs) Like you don't need to be killing yourself every second of the day and just look at the numbers, figure out how they support the narrative of what you want for your business and don't fall into a comparison trap.
0: Well said, Kate, and I think we'll (laughs) leave it there. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time, as always, chatting with my friend. Let's do it again sometime